descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature and are for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people I do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show these facts I'm retelling were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. I'm Woody Overton, your host. Before we get started... Once again, I want to give some shout-outs and some thank-yous. The first thank-you is to all of our listeners. The response is awesome, y'all. Y'all are the best fans in the entire world. We are now right at 14,000 downloads, which is amazing. And our private Facebook page is over 420 members, when just a month ago we had three. So it's Due to y'all, the fans liking and sharing and promoting us, and we really appreciate it. And the response has been overwhelming. Y'all are awesome. And let's keep it up. Keep sharing and keep posting and watch us grow, right? It's just truly, truly amazing, and we thank you so much. Now, we had a contest on the private Facebook page for who could give the get the most downloads in, in a 24-hour period for new members. And... We had three winners, and the first one is Leslie DeMars. Who's, Leslie's a good friend of mine, a lifelong law enforcement professional out of Hammond, Louisiana. Leslie, we appreciate you. And second was Celeste Cowart-Winkle. Celeste is also a good friend of ours, a family friend, and we really appreciate Celeste. It's awesome. And Mr. Troy Perrett, P-E-R-R-E-T. Troy Perrett Really appreciate your effort and taking the time to do it, y'all. And it's it's the little efforts like that are, that are making a skyrocket to the top. So we really appreciate it. And now y'all want to talk about Patron. We're on Patron and we added a new tier level, a $2 tier, which allows you to participate in asking questions to be used in future episodes. And we're starting the... A real talk hotline with me where all of our patron members are going to be given a 
private number where they can call in and ask questions or give shout outs or complain or whatever you want to say. We're going to call it in and record it and we're going to work it into the episodes. Um, of course, we're going to have some more Ask Me Anything episodes, but we also want to take a few clips every every week and, and just play your voices. So when you call in, tell us where you're from. If you don't want to give your full name, that's fine. But give us a first name at least and where you're from, and we want to hear what you have to say. You could rate the bad guys on the sphincter scale or shout out murder by you or whatever it is you have on your mind. For our patron members, we want you to call it in. We want to hear from you, and we want our other fans to hear from you, and really appreciate it. So check us out on Patreon. And we also uh, have merchandise. The store's up. There's a few, only a few items in now. Car stickers, bumper stickers, magnets, coffee mugs. But we'll have our shirts up this week. And more merchandise as it comes in, we'll be posting it to the store. So y'all check those things out. We appreciate it. And don't forget our private Facebook page. Like I said, it's over 420 members now. And we have the best team of moderators in the world Really appreciate each and every one of y'all. And thank you to the moderators and administrators or whatever you call them on the page. Y'all know who you are and we interact with you every day. We really appreciate you. So today we're going to be concluding the series Murder Me Now. As you know, if you've listened to the previous two episodes, Gerald Borderline kidnapped uh, or abducted in raped and murdered and choked to death little Courtney LeBlanc, his stepdaughter, and left her on the riverbank. He led investigators to her body after 11 days of her being in the woods, and he confessed. And now he he's a serial rapist and just a really, really bad guy. And he'd been arrested. Of course, he escaped, and we called him, and then... You know, I had the personal interactions with him every time I'd go to the jail. And then he's waiting for his trial time, right? So lots of stuff happens before they actually go to trial. A lot of pretrial motions, motions to suppress the evidence or of his confession is the first part. And we go to that hearing, and it's a freebie, y'all, for the defense to get the whole case thrown out, even though he confessed on audio and video and everything was done by the book they still challenge it the defense does and say say it was illegal or it was coerced etc and they're just praying that somebody's going to get on the stand and mess up and say something and i have the whole case thrown out well they weren't dealing with a bunch of rookies okay you're dealing with jeff methan from the fbi and chuck watts from the livingston parish sheriff's office and couple of others and these guys are were on their a game there was no coercion or anything like that and so naturally that motion to suppress was denied so he's sent back to the jail he waits for the next pre-trial motion and this goes on until his jury trial begins in june of 2006 All right during the trial it was borderline gerald borderline's defense that Jennifer Locke Borderline, his wife, or now estranged wife, Courtney's mother, actually killed Courtney and that she put the body down by the river and he was innocent and he was just taking the blame for her so she didn't have to go to prison. 
and that she showed him where the body was and all this. Well, it's a bunch of bullshit. We all know it now. I'm not saying that Jennifer Borderline's not culpable because she knew he was a sex offender, et cetera, a violent sex offender, and she still chose to date him and then marry him and give him access to the kids. And then Courtney's older sister reported that Gerald molested her, and then Courtney reported it, and Jennifer moved Courtney to Livingston Parish to avoid further investigation. And she tried to lie and say that she did it and separated from Gerald. We know that's not true because the week before, Borderline kidnapped and murdered Courtney. He was electrocuted in the house while doing some electrical work. And like I told you before, Courtney actually called 911 and gave him CPR and kept him alive until the medics got there. So his whole defense, mom murdered her, left her by the river, and he was innocent. He just was taking the the blame for her so she wouldn't get in trouble and because he loved her and yada, yada, whatever. Bullshit, okay? And everybody saw through it. The jury comes back, unanimous verdict of guilty in almost no time. And then they start the sentencing phase of the trial in which Gerald Bordelon had a chance to offer some mitigating circumstances. Now, by sentencing, I mean the, the life and death part of the trial. The jury was instructed that they were going to have to vote on what and whether or not to put him to death because he was convicted of the first-degree murder of Courtney LeBlanc, which was the kidnapping and slash rape murder at the same time, the, the aggravating circumstances that make it first-degree murder. And he decided not to put on any type of defense in the death penalty part, right? He just didn't didn't want to do it. So the prosecution tells of about how horrific the crime is. Then they're able to tell for the first time about all his prior sex convictions and the, the kidnappings that he had done before and his long history of just being a, a really, really bad guy. And he puts on no defense on that part of the trial and the jury retires and they come back in less than 45 minutes and the the sentence is death so Gerald Bordelon just sat there when they said death and he he was pretty stoic he didn't cry he didn't get mad he didn't do anything in the courtroom he just sat there and and they took him into custody and or, or handcuffed him up and getting ready to bring him to the jail now, it so happened, I was in the hallway when they were moving him through. And this is where we get the title for the series. I saw him, and I say borderline, and he had his head kind of down, his hands cuffed behind him, his heavy security on him. He said, they can just murder me now. He said, they can go ahead and kill me. I said, I'm not fighting a death penalty. They can murder me now. I want them to murder me now. That's all he kept saying over and over again. Just murder me now. I'm not sitting on death row. So that's what he said, and he meant it. So he's housed back uh, at the jail, and it's the formal sentencing date for the death penalty was on November the 6th of 2006. And Gerald Bordelon shows up to court to be sentenced by the judge, even though the jury comes back and says death penalty that day, they still have to have a formal sentencing day, right? So everybody's there, the, the media, et cetera, to hear the judge say you're going to be sentenced to death. And Bordelon shows up, and I told y'all that, that he was smart, and it fits in with the profile, the type of 
serial preferential predator that he is it, that every one of them are highly intelligent it doesn't mean they're formally educated it just means they're highly intelligent but he shows up and he wants to file a motion and that motion was to waive the direct appeal he asserted his right to waive the direct appeal in any subsequent post-conviction proceedings and he asked the trial court judge to put it on the record that his appeal in the court was solely for the purpose of waiving all other appeals for the death penalty. Bordelon said, I don't think I'm wrong. According to what the Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure states, the right of an appeal provided by the capital defendants in the Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure is just that. It's a right. Rights can be waived, just like I had the right to remain silent throughout the whole trial, just like I had the right not to put up mitigating evidence at the sentencing phase of the trial. I had those rights. That's my right. And my right is also to waive any right of appeal. Gerald said that the Louisiana Criminal Code procedure clearly states that may, M-A-Y, is is permissive. The word may is used in Article 912.1. It states the defendant may appeal to the Supreme Court from a judgment in the capital cases in which a sentence of death actually has been imposed. And shall is mandatory. May is not. He said, Gerald says, the only thing that's mandatory is for them to rule whether or not the sentence is excessive or not. He said, I don't think I'm wrong on that. I think I have the right to waive it, and that's what I'd like to do. Now, y'all, this is unheard of. In the state of Louisiana, since the death penalty had been reinstated in, in the 70s, nobody had ever waived their right to appeal for the execution. I mean, he wanted it to be done and to be done as soon as possible. So, and I told you in previous episodes about how it costs so much more to put a person to death in the state of Louisiana than to house them. And that's because of the cost of appeals and it averages 18 to 25 years that they sit on death row and they go through appeal after appeal after appeal and the families continue to suffer. And yeah, it's just, it's expensive. It's, you know, a waste of time, in my opinion. I think they should all get a basic review of the case and then just be executed. And, and I guess I'm just hard like that. Well, you know what? The only ounce of respect I ever had for Gerald Bordelon is him saying, hey, you know what? You can go ahead and murder me now. I don't want to wait. I'm waving all my pills. But the kicker of that is the state of Louisiana starts to fight Gerald Bordelon on whether or not he can waive his right to appeal. And can you believe that? They spent the next almost four years fighting in court to say that Gerald Bordelon didn't know what he was doing or what have you, that he couldn't waive his right to appeal. Now, what the hell does I mean, I, I don't understand that. Just you tell me, you explain it to me, you get a, a death penalty conviction on a guy. And it comes back unanimous. And for the first time ever, you got to have a guy who says, you know what? Murder me now. I don't want to sit on death row. But then you're going to, as the state of Louisiana, you're going to fight to prolong it anyway. I mean, to say that he can't waive his appeal. So, I mean, it was it's a big deal. They went through, like, sanity hearings. He had to be interviewed by shrinks. And they had to say that, you know, he was cognizant he knew what he was doing he ended up with jill Kraft, who is probably the top um 
civil rights attorney, if you will, in the state of Louisiana. She she takes up high profile cases, whether it's uh, public officials that are being accused or whatever, and people that are being abused by the police. I mean, she's she is like the bomb, right? So she comes, she signs on. I would assume pro bono because I think it probably cost a hundred thousand dollars just to talk to her. But she took it and she knew it would be big media attention. And the Innocence Project tried to take over his case, and he weighed that and, and kept Jill Craft. And they've fought the appeals process or the state of Louisiana trying to deny him his right to waive the appeals process. And anyway, it went on for almost uh, four years from the time that they sentenced him. And the judge did sentence him to die by lethal injection at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. And so he was shipped to Angola as a DOC Department of Corrections inmate, as he should be, and he was, he was put on death row during these years. Now, if you remember in episode one, I told you there was a serial killer, the most infamous serial killer Louisiana's ever had, active at the same time that Courtney went missing. And, well, guess what? We called him too, and he was on death row. And it turns out he had the cell next to Gerald Bordelon's, and his name was Derek Todd Lee, and this dude was a true bad guy. The difference between him and Gerald Bordelon is Derek Todd Lee was way more violent. He would he would break into women's houses and, and kidnap them and abduct them, beat the shit out of them and rape them and dump their bodies in the uh, bayou or the Chafalaya Basin in the swamp. He got away with it for a while before he was called. And we'll talk about him in another episode later on. But Derek Todd Lee, the FBI had done a profile on him and they got it wrong on, because he was a black guy, an African-American. And so during that whole time when Courtney was missing, et cetera, everybody was, was looking for this white guy and it turned out he was black, which it is rare to have a black serial killer. But regardless, he was caught through DNA and Basically, his cell was next to Gerald Bordelon's. Now, if there's any street justice in the world, if you will, they said, and I have it from a reliable source that worked at Angola on death row, said that Gerald Bordelon got absolutely tortured by Derek Todd Lee every day. All right, so talk about the mentality of it. Derek Todd Lee would call Gerald Bordelon a chomo and say things like you're a little bitch child murderer and what kind of little a bunch of bad stuff he would tease him and ride him all day every day and pick on Bordelon and remember it doesn't matter what you do to get in prison even prisoners hate or convicts hate child molesters but a child molester who kills a a kid uh, not only rapes a kid or molests a kid, but you kill one, mm-mm. Uh, you're the lowest of the low. So from the time, the years that he sat on death row, they messed with him every day. They, I mean, they gave him hell. And well, I mean, rightfully so. Back to the appeals process when they finally came back and exhausted all the legal motions, the state trying to keep him alive for whatever reason. They came back and they ruled on it. And the final ruling was 
where Jill Craft had argued that Gerald Bordelon persisted in his desire to waive his appeal in the reasons why he wished to terminate any appeals of his conviction and sentence, namely that he is guilty of the crime of which he has been convicted, that he has no desire to prolong the pain he has inflicted on the victim's family and his own family, and that he would commit the same crime again if ever given the chance. And so the court comes back and then said, with respect to the defendant's capacity to make a knowing and intelligent waiver of his appeal and the ultimate result in this case that death is the appropriate punishment of the defendant for his crime. For the reasons that follow, we grant the defendant's motion and dismiss the appeal. That's the appeal by the state of Louisiana. And before we go on to the, the execution part, I want to read you one last thing that Gerald Bordelon said. This is what he was telling the shrinks during that process when they had to find him legally sane enough to want to die. And he testified and freely conceded that he had committed the crime and that for the death of his stepdaughter, he deserved the death penalty and that if he succeeded in overturning his conviction and setting himself free, there was a 99.9% sure possibility he would commit a similar crime again. Look at my record, he told the psychiatrist. It got worse and worse every time. And... He told him that the death sentence would give Jennifer Bordelon's family some peace. And that if he did appeal and was granted either a new sentencing phase or a new trial, a lot of things that happened before would happen again. His family might have to testify. His ex-wife's family might have to testify. He said that he understood that the trial, the first trial, the first penalty phase were stressful enough for them and he didn't want them to go back through that again. He understood the high-profile nature of his case and the stress it caused. He guaranteed that if he got out, he would do it again. He felt like it was futile to put everybody back through the same situation and cause more stress to his family when he really believes that in all likelihood he would kill again. It's crazy, y'all. The shrinks came back and diagnosed him as a sexual sadist and antisocial personality anyway that's that's enough about that let's fast forward to 2010 and he's on death row in angola his uh sentencing date or his death date has been set he's waived all of his pills so it's execution time in the state of louisiana for gerald jimmy borderline now let me tell you a little bit about how that process goes 48 hours before the execution is to be carried out. They go and take Gerald Bordelon from his cell on death row under heavy guard. It's a specially trained team that moves a death penalty inmate from death row to the what we call the death house. And the death house is a cell that's set close to the execution chamber. It's in a totally separate building. So they move him, and when they're taking him out of the cell, they're giving him hell, right? Normally, when a fellow death row inmate goes to the death house, they get some show of support from the other people they've spent all the years on death row with, well, not Gerald Bordelon. They were cheering, happy, 
child molesting, raping bitch, burning hell, and everything that you could think of, right? They were really giving it to him one good last time. And Bordelon is moved to the death cell and then begins the process of, he's put on suicide watch. Actually, they have somebody sitting there monitoring him for the entire time. When, once he's moved over there, he will have human eyeballs on him at all time. And I'm not talking about just the camera. The camera's on him also. But literally somebody sitting in front of the cell, which is pretty much stripped of everything that he could harm himself with. At that last minute, they want to make sure he doesn't kill himself and I guess take away the the state's execution plans, if you will, right? We want to make sure you don't kill yourself at the last minute because we want to kill you. So he's moved over, and the day before the execution, Warden Burl Kane is a great guy, really instrumental in, in turning around the bloody Angola is what they used to call it, the worst prison in the United States, but it, he made a whole lot of reforms. And he's a Christian man, really did care about every one of the executions he presided over, et cetera. But he let Bordelon make two phone calls the night before the execution. Now, one of the phone calls was to the lady who dropped Courtney off at her house that night that she stayed home alone when her mother was at the hospital. And the next morning is when Bordelon came in and kidnapped her. And Bordelon basically told the lady. Now, this lady was not on his regular visiting list. So Burl Kane, the warden, had to approve this. And Burl Kane listened in on the phone call to make sure Bordelon wasn't doing anything twisted. Bordelon told the lady, he said, listen, it wouldn't matter if you had taken her to your house that day like you were supposed to. He said, I would have killed her and raped her at some point. He said, I had it on my mind. I had planned on doing it. I was going to do it. He said, so quit beating yourself up about letting Courtney stay there by herself. He said, because it, it, it wouldn't have mattered if you'd have dropped her off or if she'd have spent the night at your house that night. I would have got her another day. I mean, he plainly unashamedly admits that he his sole intention was to at some point rape and murder Courtney LeBlanc and Burl Kane let him make another phone call to someone I'm not sure who this was but it was another female they said that had a child so he makes the phone call to whoever the this other female was, and I can only assume that it had something to do with maybe this lady was worried that Bordelon had raped one of her kids also, but evidently Warden Kane said that he he put her mind at ease, whatever it was. So the next day, execution day, Gerald Bordelon is brought into a visitation room, and his family is allowed access for a long time, period of hours. I think it's like five hours or something, and they get to visit face-to-face. -face. His daughters came, his daughters from the previous marriage, and they visited, and his daughter gave him a gold cross, which he gave her a cross that he had made, had made in the prison. Of, I don't know what it was made from. I'm assuming wood or something. And he gets to spend all this quality, precious time that Courtney LeBlanc didn't get to spend when he choked her to death and left her naked on the side of the river. That's what burns my ass when I think about that executions and the, and the visitation time. But he gets to spend all his time saying his goodbyes and his I love yous and whatever. Courtney LeBlanc didn't get that. I believe that 
the execution be an eye for an eye. They should have took his ass out by the river and choked him to death and left him naked for 11 days. But he gets the visitation, and finally it's concluded, and they take his daughters to one of the chapels at Angola where they wait, and then it's just the warden and Gerald and his spiritual advisor, and he gets to have his last supper or his last meal. And I always found the last meals that people choose interesting. I don't know why, maybe a little bit of a twisted side in me, but he had fried sacale, which is sacale is a Cajun term for uh, a certain type of fish. Up north, you call them crappie or white bass or whatever. It really is an excellent tasting fish. But he had fried sacale topped with crawfish etouffee, which is crawfish cooked down like in a, a bisque which is generally served over rice but he had his served over his fried fish crawfish etouffee what a delicious meal right and a peanut butter and apple jelly sandwich and chocolate chip cookies and they said warden kane said that bordelon was in really good spirits and that he ate his meal not only did he eat it he shared it with warden kane and his spiritual advisor and they said he was positive upbeat and like it didn't have really have a worry in the world i mean <laughs> but warden kane said most inmates would just kind of push the food around the plate and kind of pick at it or whatever but it said gerald bordelon tore into it he ate it up meanwhile around the same time courtney's family is showing up for the execution now the execution is watched the person being executed is allowed so many viewers if you will then there's representatives from law enforcement representatives from the media and representatives from the victim side of the family and on the victim side was courtney's mother jennifer cock k-o-c-k-e maiden name is what she's going by now but of course she was borderline at the time and Jennifer's brother, Courtney's uncle, and then Jennifer's older sister, one of the twins, who was actually the other one that he molested. And she had reported the molestation first. And so they're arriving at the prison, going through the security process, and eventually they're brought into the viewing room. Now, on the viewing room has one side it will be the, the witnesses for the victim, and on the other side, if they choose to be so, or the bad guy's family or whoever it is he chooses to have view. And in the middle is the glass booth where the gurney is in the room where the execution has and it has big glass windows all the way around with curtains on it. So they bring in Bordelon, the seven men dressed in all black in their protective suits, escort Bordelon in, and he's wearing a white t-shirt which makes me think back to the interview he gave when Courtney was still missing when he had his hat turned around backwards that's what he was wearing then was a white t-shirt and and blue jeans and he's wearing a white t-shirt and a gold cross and he's sniffling he had had been crying and they warden Kane asked him do you have any final words and Bordelon says I'm sorry I don't know if this brings any closure or peace. It should have never happened, but it did, and I'm sorry. He said, choking up and halting to collect himself. 
his eyes red rimmed from crying. Bordelon added, I'd like to apologize to my family and tell them that I love them. At that time, they closed the curtains and the seven men strapped him down to the gurney and they put the IVs in his arm where the lethal injection chemicals were coming from. And once that's done, they open the curtains again and he's strapped down and he's looking up. He's kind of sniffling, crying a little bit. And and he tells Warden Kane, he says, you know, tell my daughter that I love her. And then, you know, you think, well, this this is it. And maybe he found Jesus. He's wearing the gold cross and he's saying he's sorry and everything. But then the last second, he looks over through the glass at Courtney's sister, the one he molested. And I guess he just couldn't help himself. The devil rose up in him because then he starts to say her name and ask her to look at him. He wants her to look him in the eyes. He said, look me in the eyes. Look at me. Look me in the eyes. And she wouldn't do it. She said she held her head down. She said she wasn't going to give him that. As they're pushing the lethal dope into his veins, the last thing he does on the face of this earth is try to get his one of his victims to look at him in the eyes. And as he's dying, that's what he's saying. He's trying to assert control one more time over one of his victims. That's how I take it. I mean, why not look at your own family while you're taking your last breath? But no, he couldn't help himself. The sadist in him, the devil in him, wants to just reach out and take control one more time of that young lady who he molested. But she didn't give it to him. She she said she held her head down and would look him in the eyes. And then they said he took a deep breath along. And then he died. At 6.32 p.m., Warden Kane pronounced Gerald Bordelon dead and said, we now send his soul to his final judgment. And that's true. And I believe probably not one to sit in judgment on anybody, but I believe that when the that evil came out of him in the last second, when the the dope's being pushed into his veins, he's trying to reassert control over the victim that the true color show through, right? I mean, he's literally dying trying to reach out and he just can't help himself. So I believe personally that when he passed, the fires of hell burned a little bit brighter that night, but it is what it is. So one more note, footnote to the story is everybody leaves and then they come in and, and they bag his body, etc. And the pathologist, the doctor has to sign off on the death certificate in Louisiana, as in every other state, when the state executes an inmate, they have to put a cause of death, just like everybody else's death certificate, whether it's natural causes or whatever it may be, they have to list a cause. And the cause of death listed on Gerald Bordelon's death certificate is homicide. That's right. The, the state has not changed, or none of the states have changed it yet, so it's still 
technically considered a homicide. His cause of death is homicide by the state of Louisiana. A little bit of poetic justice in that, if you will. And that's it. And on the sphincter scale, well, this one goes straight to murder by you. And that's self-explanatory. He got what he deserved. And the only decent thing he ever did was waive his, his right to appeals or he would outlive probably all of us on death row. And I'm not trying to be a sadist, but I'm glad he, he had those years next to Derek Todd Lee and the rest of them. And they gave him hell for what he did to Courtney for being a, a child molester and a rapist and a murderer of a, of a sweet, innocent, beautiful young girl. So definitely on the sphincter scale, he's straight off the charts, murder by you. As far as... Uh, Courtney's mom, I'll leave that one up to y'all, and you know what I think about her. So, but I want to conclude this episode and appreciate you and thank you for listening. And hope you'll tune in next week. We'll have an all new episode on another real, what I call a really good bad guy. We appreciate you for listening to this podcast. And again, thank each and every one of you. We appreciate you. Uh, use the new Real Talk hotline, y'all. I'm looking forward to that and hearing what you have to say and incorporating that into these episodes and use it and check out our merchandise and check out their, our private group page. And again, we are having such huge success b- because of you, the listeners, and y'all taking the time to share and post it in your groups and to your friends. And we, We're in over 50 countries now five zero countries around the world that's amazing y'all are amazing and i really appreciate you thank you so much for listening and i'm woody overton your host of real life real crime the podcast until next week oh she do me